All right, well, judging by the noise level, this party has started. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Fred Lee. I am the uh, Director of Alumni Engagement at Alumni UBC. I'm also a UBC grad. It is absolutely my pleasure to welcome all of you to the uh, Marriott Pinnacle Hotel and this evening's Mastermind Masterclass with Gabor Mate. Uh, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are gathered here on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Mastermind Masterclass is an alumni UBC speaker series which began in UBC's centennial year, offering students, faculty, staff, and alumni an unprecedented look into the minds of modern masters making a very unique impact on the world and sharing the lessons they've learned with us. The series is now in its third year and we want to acknowledge the estate of Kitty Heller for the generous contribution to making this series possible. As well, we do also want to uh, offer our sincere appreciation and thanks to Scotiabank and the CBC for their sponsorship of tonight's special event. Please join me in thanking all of our generous donors and supporters. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is now my pleasure to introduce tonight's CBC moderator, uh, a good colleague and friend, Mike Colleen. Uh, Mike is, of course, co-host of CBC Vancouver News flagship program at six. He's a veteran broadcaster who loves storytelling and thrives on breaking news. He is part of a committed team dedicated to bringing viewers not only the news of the day, but also a very fresh perspective on community stories that matter to them. Mike's journalism career spans more than three decades and two continents. He brings to CBC Vancouver news familiarity and breadth of experience, not only locally, but nationally and internationally. He has anchored live coverage and reported on some of BC's biggest stories. Mike is a multiple award winner of both the Radio Television, Digital News Association, and British Columbia Association of Broadcasters. He earned the prestigious Edward R. Murrow Award for overall excellence in the large market television category in 2016. He has, of course, also earned a Jack Webster Award for best television feature reporting. Without further ado, everyone, please give a warm welcome to our uh, moderate tonight, Mike Colleen. Thank you, Fred. You are truly a treasure. I see you got my, uh, my resume. I appreciate that. I, I did have to update it recently, uh, as you may know, but uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, this is my first uh, mastermind uh, master class, uh, so I, I guess I'm the new guy. They don't usually let me out between 6 and 7 p.m., uh, so this is a, a real treat, so I, I'm here with no makeup and no teleprompter to be with you tonight, so. <laughs> exactly. Or Anita. Anita's holding down the fort at six uh, back at the uh, back of the station. Um, and I'm really excited to be uh, hearing from, uh, as I think we all are, from Dr. Gabor Mate, uh, to hear his talk on, and I want to get this right, The Hungry Ghost, a biopsychosocial perspective on addiction from heroin to workaholism. After his talk, I'm going to join Dr. Mate on stage for a chat, and as Fred mentioned, we'll be asking for your questions, so don't forget to uh, submit those. Make sure you uh, log on uh, to Slido and uh, get those in there. Right now, I would like to introduce our very special guest. Gabor Mate is a retired physician who, after 20 years of family practice and palliative care experience, worked for more than a decade on Vancouver's downtown east side with patients challenged by drug addiction and mental illness. The best-selling author of four books published in 25 languages, he is an internationally renowned speaker, highly sought after for his expertise on addiction, trauma, childhood development, and the relationship of stress and illness. His book on addiction received the Hubert Evans Prize for Literary Nonfiction, for his groundbreaking medical work and writing, he's been awarded the Order of Canada. You can see he's wearing the pin tonight. That's, of course, uh, our country's highest civilian distinction. And the Civic Merit Award from his hometown of Vancouver. 
His four books include In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction, When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, Scattered Minds, The Origins and Healing of Attention Deficit Disorder, and with Gordon Neufeld, Hold On to Your Kids, Why Parents Need to Matter More Than Peers. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please join me in welcoming to the stage Dr. Gabor Mate. Thank you. The uh, first order of business is the sound. Can you hear me throughout the room at the back? Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you very much. <clears throat> well, I have 45 minutes to uh, give you a lot of information, um, but really my intention, far more than giving you information, is to offer you a perspective, a way of looking at things. The crisis of addiction need not to be um, Described in too much detail, we all know the overdose deaths, uh, the epidemic of that that has beset North America, uh, especially here in Vancouver and in British Columbia. Uh, in Canada last year, over 4,000 people overdosed on drugs. And uh, in the United States, every three weeks, every three weeks, they have the equivalent of a 9-11 number of deaths because of overdoses. And that's only, of course, the most dramatic and the most tragic um, expression of the addiction epidemic in North America, which goes way beyond drugs. So it's not so much that I want to tell you a lot of facts, but I really want to give you, uh, offer you a perspective with which to understand it. And the reason I do that is because the, the, the question that governments and, and academicians and, and policymakers at all levels are always asking themselves, what do we do? What do we do? Is this crisis? What do we do about this crisis? The question that you more, the question that you rarely hear is, before, what do we do about this? How do we understand this? What is this we all about? Is it possible that if after decades and decades and decades of doing the same thing, largely the same thing, over and over and over and over again, and we're not getting any nearer to a solution? In fact, in some ways, we're falling back. Is it possible that the problem really isn't that addiction itself, and even drug addiction in particular, is such an intractable, difficult, impossible condition? Is it possible that the problem is more that we don't understand it? That we're not looking at it from a, 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 a complete and deeply grounded perspective? When I say deeply grounded, I mean in science, in, in research, and also in human experience. Now, what is the social view of addiction? Well, the social view of addiction is very simple, and it's uh, eating up a lot of our money in the court system, in the legal system, the so-called correctional system that doesn't correct anything, what we call the criminal justice system. It's a very appropriate word for it, phrase for it. It is a criminal system. When you look at somebody like this man, Aaron Capay in Ontario, who spent over 1,600 days, was it, in solitary confinement? Well, that's criminal. And underneath that approach is a particular belief. It's a particular point of view. And the point of view is, is that um, Addiction in particular, but a lot of other behaviors, are actually choices that people make. These are choices that people make. Now, in our society, we have a very behavioral approach. We don't like a behavior, we want to change the behavior. And we do so by means of rewards and punishments. And that begins early in life, and we tell parents, we actually tell parents, that if you want a baby to sleep, the way you get him to sleep is not to pick him up at night. And it works. You get the behavior that you wanted. That baby, after three or four nights, will sleep through the night. Wow, it works. And then you're told, if your baby or if your child is two years old and throws a tantrum, then what you do is you give him a timeout. Give her a timeout, which means you separate from them, you banish them from your presence. 
just for a short period of time. And of course, it works. These behavioral things work because the child who does not get picked up just gives up. But in the meanwhile, you've done something to his brain, which I'll talk to you about later. And the child who is banished from your presence, for some very good reasons, will then um, try to be compliant and meek because you've threatened him with something that he really doesn't want to lose. But what have you done to his self-concept, to his idea of what love is, to the nature of the world, and to how he feels about himself? That's a different question. Behavioral approaches don't care about those questions. And the primary approach in psychology for the last half a century at least has been behavioral. And schools are grounded in that, the medical system is grounded in it, and the courts are grounded in it. So basically, if an adult does something bad, we also give them a timeout, and we call that jail. You can't be with us. And we think, because it's a choice, this is the way to approach it. Now, if it wasn't a choice, it'd be no sense in punishing people for it, would there? So in the idea of punishment, there is the ground belief that we're talking about a choice here which also means that prevention has to deal with, A, making punishment so draconian that people will not want to engage in that behavior, which is why the United States, which makes up 5% of the world's population, contains 25% of the world's jail population, which means that every fourth person in the world in jail is a citizen of the land of the free. And the other aspect of prevention is to tell kids that drugs are bad. Because if they have the right information, they will not make that choice. So that was tried in the 1980s. Uh, when you're elected, I'm sorry, when, you be, when you're the wife of an American president, you have to have a cause. So they all have their causes. And Nancy Reagan took on the cause of drug use. And she had this very famous campaign called just say no. So on the highways, there were billboards saying just say no, and the schools, they put up sign, just say no. More recently, the, um, only a few months ago, uh, dethroned Attorney General of the United States, Mr. Jeff Sessions, uh, when he was Attorney General, he said uh, two years ago, I think this month or, or, or last month, he said, we need to say, as Nancy Reagan said, just say no, don't do it. And our nation needs to say clearly once again that using drugs is bad. It will destroy your life, and so on. In the 1890s, we saw campaigns stressing prevention. We can do this again. Now, just as successful that just say no choice-based campaign was is illustrated by a fact I've already told you. Every three weeks, they have as many people dying as they did in 9-11. That's how successful that idea is. And you'd think somebody would get it. But no, our society, including Canada, continues to practice that social policy. Now, the other idea of addiction, which is more forward-looking, more science-based, and certainly more humane, is the medical view of addiction as a brain disease. And addiction specialists tend to look upon addiction as a chronic brain disease, an incurable brain disease that you can control the symptoms of and so on, but you, you'll, you'll never lose it. And mostly, not completely, but mostly, about 40 to 70%, according to that disease model, is based in genetics, so that the, the tendency is largely inherited, 40 to 70%. That's the belief. Now, that model allows for treatment, it at least um, eliminates judgment because you're not gonna condemn people for inheriting the wrong genes. And it will also allow for some tolerance in the sense that if people have a relapse, at least ideally, you're not going to ostracize them or, or, or somehow punish them any more than you would somebody with rheumatoid arthritis or any other chronic illness who has a relapse. 
So certainly that's much more scientifically based and, and much more grounded. But it's also not getting us too far. It also, it's also not getting us too far. And maybe that's because it's inadequate. Maybe it's because it's incomplete. Maybe because it has some truth in it, but it's not the truth. It's not the complete truth. But let's just talk about what addiction is. And before I tell you what I think addiction is, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. If, any, if you've had an addiction in your life, just raise your hand. Thank you. So about half to 55% on a quick say. I'll give you a definition of addiction, and I'll get another raise of hand. Addiction is manifested in any behavior that a person finds temporary pleasure or relief in, and therefore craves, suffers negative consequences as a result of, but cannot or does not give it up despite negative consequences. I said any behavior, substance-related or not, which means you can be addicted to substances, cocaine, nicotine, caffeine, heroin, alcohol, cannabis, crystal meth, any number of substances. You could also be addicted to sex, to gambling, to shopping, to eating, even to bulimia, uh, to internet, to pornography, to work, and a whole other slew of human behaviors. The issue is not the behavior, the issue is the relationship to it. If it gives you temporary relief and pleasure, and therefore you crave it, but it causes negative consequences in the long term, and you don't give it up, that's an addiction. Let me ask again how many addicts there are in the room. Now raise your hand. Okay, how many addicts, are, how many people have had addictions in their life of any kind at all? Okay, well, I see quite a few more hands, and those few that didn't put their hands up, uh, we want to know how you did it. <laughs> but I'm going to ask you another question now, for which I'll ask some of you to give me an answer. Just raise your hand, and I'll recognize you, and you just tell me. I'm not going to ask you what you're addicted to, how long, or when. I'm just going to ask you what you liked about it. What did it do for you? In the short term, what did you get from it? So is anybody willing to tell me? If you, if you are, just raise your hand. What did you get from your addiction? Whatever it was. And again, I'm not going to ask you what it was. Yes, please. What did you get from it? Sorry? Serenity. Serenity. Inner peace. Thank you. Somebody else? Yes? Distraction from negative feelings. Is that right? Distraction from emotional pain. Yeah, thank you. Same thing. It, it helped you to numb out. Okay, numbing, distraction, serenity, yes? Feeling of control, being in charge. Now, let, let me just stop here and point out something obvious. Do we all not want to feel that we're in charge of our lives? Is that a bad thing to strive, to strive for? Do we all not want inner peace, serenity? When you go to a dentist and they're going to drill your teeth, do you not want to be numbed? <laughs> and do we want to suffer negative emotions, difficult emotions like rage, pain, hurt, when we have no capacity to manage them? No. You want relief. In other words, what I'm saying is that the addiction is not your primary problem. To say that it's a disease misses the point. It acts like a disease once it's full-blown, but it doesn't begin as such. It actually begins as an attempt to solve the problem. The problem is that you're in pain and you want to be numbed. The problem is that you have negative emotions and you don't know how to handle them because you haven't had that support in your life. The problem is that you're lacking inner peace. You have turmoil, and again, you're overstressed by it, and you have no capacity to ground yourself in a more serene state. The problem is that you've lost a sense of agency, control in your life. Those are the problems that addiction tries to solve. And then the question is, how did you develop that problem? How did you develop so much inner turmoil that you need to escape from it? How did you suffer so much pain that you have to numb yourself? Whence these negative emotions that you have to escape from? Where did you lack your sense of control agency in your life? 
Who took that away from you? And how old were you when they did? These are the questions we have to ask if we understand addiction. So on the first level, addiction is simply an attempt to solve a problem, a very human problem. So addiction, in a certain sense, is one of the most human things possible. Because the states that the addict wants to achieve are normal human states. That's the first point in doing the archaeology of addiction. On the second level, it's very simple. I was diagnosed with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, when I was in my 50s, and I was prescribed a medication, which is a stimulant medication called dexedrine, uh, and there's another one called Ritalin. And, and these substances elevate the level of a chemical in the brain called dopamine that is essential for survival, for reasons that I'll tell you. But they're essential for incentive, motivation, and attention. Now, what else elevates dopamine levels? Well, all the stimulants do. Crystal meth, cocaine, caffeine, nicotine. A lot of the people who are actually using these substances and others are actually self-medicating ADHD. That's not just my personal opinion. That's just what the studies show. And what I'm saying about addictions in general, that on the secondary level, they're very often self-medications. So people self-medicate anxiety with, with tranquilizers and with alcohol. People self-medicate bipolar disorder with alcohol because it soothes the highs and elevates the lows of the bipolar state. People self-medicate depression with these drugs. People self-medicate uh, social phobia. They have a bit of a drink, and now they can uh, connect with other people, or they have a shot of cocaine, now they can actually be the life of the party for a while. People self-medicate post-traumatic stress disorder with opiates. So a lot of the soldiers that come back from Afghanistan, by the way, just as a fact, I'm not talking politics here, I'm just talking about fact. Before the American-led Canadian participated mission to Afghanistan, Afghanistan was producing virtually no opium. It is the source of opium in this world. Now it's producing more opium than ever before. We've achieved that much, at least, with our mission. Now, these soldiers who come back from these wars with post-traumatic stress disorder often become alcoholics, so they become very often opiate addicts because they're self-medicating the symptoms of PTSD. So on the second level, it's self-medication, very often which means it's not enough to just to talk about the addiction. It's a behavior problem. You really have to look at, A, what problem is that addiction trying to solve in the person's life? B, and how do they get that problem? And how do we help them solve that problem without the addiction? And uh, secondly, what mental health issue may also be there that is contributing to the addictive drive? Now, this is where I'll talk a little bit about perspective. Now, the Western medicine that I was trained in at UBC Medical School really separates the mind from the body. We don't actually get that people's emotions have a huge impact on their physiology, and that this shows up, in my view, but also according to a lot of literature, in chronic illnesses from malignancy to uh, autoimmune disease and so on. And we also don't get that the person is intimately connected with the environment. Now, this is not a new idea. I spoke this morning at another conference. This is mostly for First Nations people here in Vancouver, well, from across the country, and people that work in First Nations or with First Nations populations. And I was asked to consider how traditional ways of healing might offer some ways out of the conundrum that the narrowness of Western medical approaches um, limit us to. And one of the things that First Nations people say is, all my relations. It's a greeting and it's a saying, all my relations, they say. What they're saying is that everything is related to everything else. When they say all my relations, they say all my relations. 
the people in my life, the society I live in, the environment with which I'm connected to. That holistic view of people and human life and health is not unique to the First Nations people of North America. It's the traditional way of looking at things. The Buddha said it 2,500 years ago in Nepal or northern India, wherever he lived. And he said, contemplate the interconnected co-arising of phenomena every moment. He called it the interconnected co-arising. Everything arises in relationship to everything else. He said, look at a leaf or a raindrop and consider, contemplate how that leaf contains everything. And of course it does. The leaf contains the sun, without which there's no photosynthesis, no life. The leaf contains the earth, the minerals, and of course it contains the sky, the irrigation, the water that the plant needs. So the leaf, when we look at a leaf, we just, now intellectually we know all this. I'm not giving you information that isn't obvious to you. But knowing something intellectually and having a worldview that actually incorporates, the, incorporates this into how you look at things is not the same thing. I mean, even knowing this and saying this to you, what I just related, when I look at a leaf, I still see a separate object. But I'm telling you, there are people who still walk this earth who when they look at a leaf, they don't see a separate object. They see something totally interconnected. And it so happens that modern science tells us that's the only way you can look at the world realistically and properly. Now, in 1977, there was um, an American physician who called for a new model of uh, medicine. He said, the dominant model of medicine today is biomedical, with molecular biology its basic scientific discipline. It assumes disease to be fully accounted for by deviations from the norm of measurable biological variables. It leaves no room within its framework for the social, psychological, and behavioral dimensions of illness. The biomedical model embraces mind-body dualism, the, doctors that, the doctrine that separates the mental from the somatic. That was it, and he called for what he termed uh, biopsychosocial model of medicine, which is to say one that recognizes that people's biology, physiology, is intimately connected with their psychological and social relationships and environment, and including their inner emotions. Well, that was 42 years ago, and we haven't come much further because the very well-known Canadian physician Dr. Norman Deutsch said it this way just a couple of years ago. Modern scientific medicine has taken a fundamentally materialist approach and it is analytical, meaning that it divides holes into parts. It often proceeds by reducing complex phenomena to their more elementary chemical and physical components, viruses, genes, molecules. And that's how we practice. This is why we don't understand chronic illness and this is why we don't understand addictions. Now, what is actually the case? What is actually the case is that the biology of addiction, the biology of the addicted brain, and I'm talking about the addicted brain, whether the target is sex or gambling or shopping or drugs, and by the way, it doesn't matter what your addiction is, whether it is sex or gambling or shopping or drugs, it's the same brain circuits that are engaged. It's the same chemicals that are involved. It's the same behaviors that people follow. There's a universal addiction process. There's not these different addictions. Now there's, you know, internet gaming addiction. That's the latest entry into the medical lexicon. It's not a new addiction. It's just a new form of the universal addiction process. And these brain circuits, about which I say very little, are actually shaped by the environment and our interactions with people. Now, which circuits are involved? Well, the opiate circuitry of the brain, we have a circuitry that uses um, morphine-like substances. This is 
endogenous, it's internal. We have internal opiates, they're called endorphin. Endorphin means endogenous morphine-like substance. Why do we have endorphins? They do many things in the body. All creatures have them. But in human life, they do three major things. First, they relieve pain. And the reason that morphine and heroin and, and, and codeine and all these opiate-like substances work is because they bind to the same receptor sites, the same molecules, as our internal opiates do. So we actually have receptors where these external drugs can bind and do their job. Thank God, because when I was working in palliative care, giving people high doses of morphine, that's the only thing that could keep them out of pain. So thank God we have an opiate system for pain relief. Pain relief, but it's not just physical pain relief, it's also emotional pain relief that they provide. That's the first role. The second role is they give you the experience of pleasure, joy, elation. So whenever you're overjoyed, whenever you're really happy, you have a lot of endorphins happening in your brain. And the third thing they do is the most important one. Now, I worked for 12 years in the downtown east side, just about 18 blocks east of here. And I asked a sex trade worker once, a 27-year-old young woman, what does heroin do for you? And she said, the first time I did heroin, it felt like a warm, soft hug. She was talking about love. And that's the third function of the endorphins. They make possible attachment relationships, love, without which life is impossible, because the human baby does not survive without attachment relationships. So if the baby wasn't drawn to the parent, and if the parenting adults were not drawn to the baby, that baby would not survive. In fact, in the laboratory, this has been done. You knock out, genetically, you knock out the endorphin opiate receptors in baby mice. These little creatures will not call for their mothers, will not cry on separation, which would mean what in the wild? It would mean their death. That's how important the opiates are. Now, you put a sign on the wall saying, just say no to pain relief, to pleasure and reward, and to love. And you hope that's going to work. Now another, now, another circuit in the brain that's involved in addiction is the dopamine circuitry. Now, dopamine is the chemical responsible or implicated in motivation, in incentive. Dopamine flows when you're seeking food, exploring a novel object, investigating a novel environment, seeking a sexual partner. Without dopamine, and this has been done in the laboratory again, a little mouse will starve to death and not eat because he's got no incentive to do so. So we can't live without dopamine either. And all the addictions give you dopamine. Not just the stimulant addictions, which give you a lot of dopamine, but all addictive behaviors stimulate dopamine release in the brain, which is why behavior addicts are substance addicts. It's just that the substance comes from within their own brain. So the sex addict or the shopping addict, they're not after the sex or the goods that they buy. They're after that dopamine high of incentive and feeling alive and feeling motivated. That's why they keep going back and going back and going back. And there's other brain circuits like impulse regulation and stress regulation that I won't go into detailing now, but how does the brain actually develop? Now this is amazing, and, and, and I'm telling you, what I'm about to sketch for you in, in, in one minute or two is not controversial, it's just brain science. It's brain science that we've known at least since the 1990s, but the research was coming even before then. It's been published in major medical, medical journals. Um, plenty of textbooks have been written about it, and not a single doctor hears about it in their medical education, including at UBC. They just don't talk about this stuff, which is truly astonishing. But how does the human brain actually develop? How do these circuits go awry? Well, the human brain develops in interaction with the environment, because most of our brain development has to occur after birth. We're not born running like a horse. It takes a long time for a brain to develop. And much of that happens in the first few years. How does the brain develop? So I'm going to quote you from a very authoritative uh, journal, which is the Journal of Pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Academy. 
And um, the article is from Harvard University, 19, sorry, 2012. Could hardly be more authoritative. This information by then was not new, but they were summarizing it. And even after it appears in major medical journals, doctors still don't hear about it in education. Which again, to me, is astonishing. But not only astonishing, it's devastating. That, that lack of information is devastating to medical practice. So here's what they say about brain development. The architecture of the brain is constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth, continues into adulthood, and establishes either a sturdy or a fragile foundation for all the health, learning, and behavior that follows. So that the architecture of the brain happens from before birth into adulthood. What does that mean? You know what it means for addiction? It means for addiction that the prevention of addiction needs to begin at the first prenatal visit. Because the emotional states of the mother already influence the physiology of the child's brain. Because if mothers are stressed or abused, for example, we know that adopted kids are at high risk for everything. Why? Because they spend nine months in a stressed uterus. How do we know that? We know that because no woman who's not stressed needs to give up a baby. And so for nine months, the hormones of stress, cortisol and adrenaline, are going through the baby. And that interferes with brain development. Incidentally, when you don't pick up a three-month-old who's crying, guess what? There are a lot of cortisol in the brains, and that interferes with the brain development. We're damaging our kids' brains by the parenting practices that we're teaching to young moms and dads in this society. That's what we're doing. In the second paragraph, the interactions of genes and experiences literally shapes the circuitry of the developing brain and is critically influenced by the mutual responsiveness of adult-child relationships, particularly in early childhood years. What's being said here is that the circuits in the brain, such as the ones I talked about, that the chemicals in the brain and the balance of chemicals in the brain that are responsible for human mood, emotional tone, and behavior, and impulse regulation, all those things that are disturbed in mental illnesses and addictions, specifically, they develop in interaction with the early environment, which means that the necessary condition for healthy human brain development, are you getting the point? I'm not talking about psychological development here, although that's a part of it. I'm talking about the very physiology of the brain depends on the relationship of the child to the adult world. So when you ask, well, why is it in our society now that you get this burgeoning of all these childhood diagnoses, you know, oppositional defiant disorder, ADHD, pervasive development disorder, autism spectrum disorders, um, anxiety, depression, what's happening? What's happening is that the conditions for healthy brain development are less and less available because parents are more and more isolated and more and more stressed. And that has an impact on the child's developing brain. And nobody, I'd be very surprised if in educational faculty, possibly in the Department of Psychology, but I'd have to find out, and certainly not in the medical faculty, do they talk about that basic fact? And that means that when you look at a behavior, or you look at a, a, a troubled person, adult or child, and you think there's something wrong with their brain, well, it's got to be a biological problem. And how do we solve biological problems? By trying to change the biology. How do we do that? Through medications, mostly. Which, by the way, I'm not against, and which I've prescribed, and I've taken medications for depression and for ADHD, so I'm not against them. But to think that that's what the problem is, or this is where it originates, is hopelessly narrow, and it ignores the scientific evidence. So having said that, what do we find when we look at the... Um... Jessica, how many more minutes do I have? Five? Okay. What do we find, Remy, I'm going to take a few more than that, but not much more. Uh, what do we find when we actually look at the conditions under which the brains and personalities of uh, addicted people uh, developed. 
Well, sorry, in the downtown east side, I can tell you, in 12 years of work, I met not a single female patient there who had not been sexually abused in childhood. Not one. Now, what conditions does that provide for brain development? And all the men had had really difficult histories. Now, that's the extreme, of course. And you think, well, so what? That was your experience in a small population, relatively speaking. Where's the proof? The proof has been delivered multiple times in many studies involving many thousands of people, including, or more saliently, the very well-known adverse childhood experiences studies done in California originally. And they showed that the more childhood adversity a young human being experienced, the greater his or her risk for, for addiction was later on in life. Not just for addiction, mental illness, ADHD, autoimmune disease, malignancy, um, behavior problems, legal problems, sexually transmitted disease. But specifically with addictions, they showed that, now what were adverse childhood experiences? An adverse childhood experience was, I think they listed 10 of them, I don't always remember all 10. Physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, uh, neglect, violence in the family, a parent being addicted, a parent dying, a parent being jailed, uh, did I say a parent being mentally ill, or a divorce. And for each of these ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, by the way, you can go home tonight and download your ACE score, fill it out, you see something about your background. For each of these adverse childhood experiences, the risk of addiction goes up, and when they are joined together, they don't add up, they multiply. So by the time a, a child has said six of these, a male child, his risk of having become um, a substance-using, injection-dependent addict is 4,600% greater, a 46-fold increase, than a child who's not had any of these experiences. Now, one thing that the adult childhood experiences studies originally did not include is something else that I found is very important. The British psychiatrist D.W. Winnicott pointed out once that basically two things can go wrong in a child's life. One is when things that shouldn't happen, happen. And that's the ad adversity, that's the ACEs. By the way, I doubt very much that UBC medical students to this day get a single lecture on the ACEs, even though they are at the basis of most of the illness they're ever gonna see. Now, and certainly all the addiction they're ever gonna see. So one thing that can go wrong is when bad things happen that shouldn't. But the other thing that can go wrong is when good things don't happen that should. And the thing that needs to happen for healthy human development is uh, attuned, non-stressed, emotionally available, consistently available parents. In our society, with the economic pressure on parents, with the isolation of families from another, with the loss of neighbors, loss of connection, which, by the way, brings me to Slido, this uh, device, that, this uh, program you're using tonight. I'm sure it's great. <laughs> and I also know, having talked in many places many times, sometimes questions that people ask can be difficult because they tend to go on and whatever. But when you Slido, with due respect, you lose something. I don't hear the tone of the voice of the person who's asking. I don't really know what's happening for them. Behind that question might be intellectual curiosity. Behind that question might be a lot of emotional pain. Behind that question might be some experience that they're putting in the form of a question. Well, that would make all the difference to, to how I formulate my answer. But I can't gauge that when I get a tight question delivered on a screen. So this is a society of lost connections. And children particularly lose their connections to the adults because the adults are so busy and so on. Hence the internet, hence the Facebook addiction, hence all that desperation for having friends, for having people like you. These are attachment, these are relational words. You know, everybody's consumed by how many, concerned with how many people like the later, you know. I had a muffin this morning. How many people like that, you know? <laughs> because they're lacking that attachment in their lives. And so that's what should be happening, but isn't. And I can tell you, 
As often as I talk on this subject, and it doesn't matter where, whether from Australia to Northern Europe, um, to Turkey, every once in a while there's somebody in the audience who says, you know, I had a perfectly happy childhood, but I still became addicted. And it usually takes about two minutes of conversation for that person to find that yes, their parents loved them, yes, they had a lot of happiness in their childhood, but they also had a lot of pain that they suppressed because there was nobody there to help them process it. And that's what's missing for so many children. So, um, to sum it up, addiction is a complex process. It involves brain physiology, it involves psychology, and it's all rooted in what I call trauma, and the essence of trauma, by the way, is not, as trauma is not what happens to you. Trauma is not the sexual abuse. That's traumatic, but it's not the trauma. The trauma is what happens inside you as a result of what happens to you. And the basic trauma is a disconnection from the self. Let me just show that to you. I'm going to ask you to show, raise your hand if you've had the following experience, that you had a strong gut feeling about something and you ignored it, and you were sorry afterwards. If you had that experience, just raise your hand. Okay? Many, many, many people. Now, that means there was a disconnect. That disconnect is what I mean by trauma. Because gut feelings are necessary for survival and for healthy relationships. People in the wild, First Nations people, would not survive for a day if they didn't have their gut feeling. So that loss of gut feeling, that loss of connection to the self, is the essence of trauma. Now, trauma has other features. The Buddha said, again, 2,500 years ago, in the, the first line in his book of sayings, the Dhammapada, is that um, everything is thought in the lead, so that our thoughts guide us. So basically, he's saying that it's with our minds that we create the world, which is totally true. What he didn't say was, that's modern psychology that before with our minds you create the world, the world creates our minds. And what kind of a mind does the trauma create for somebody who's living down to on his side and was abused as a neglected as a child? And since then, he or she has been punished for having been hurt. That's what we do. We punish people for having been hurt. What kind of world do they live in? They live in a world that's hostile, where help isn't available, where they're on their own, where they have to fend for themselves against the very difficult circumstances. That's the world their minds have created because that's the mind that the world created for them when they had no choice in the matter, when they were very small. Which comes to the treatment of addiction now. We talk about recovery. Well, that's an interesting word. What does it mean to recover something? It means to find something and to get it back. By definition, if it means that you're finding something or getting it back, that thing must never have been destroyed in the first place. Otherwise, you couldn't recover it. Now, I wonder, those of you, some of you, who consider that you've recovered from addiction, what did you recover? What did you find? Anybody be able to say? Anyone? Connection, okay, what else? Yourself, you said? Yes? Is that what you said? Okay, yourself. Both are true. That means that your true self was never lost. It was always in there. You just lost contact with it. That loss of connection with the self is the trauma. Getting it back is the recovery. And what I'm suggesting for you, um, now that I'm completing this, is that we could help many more people recover themselves. We could have many help many more people find themselves in a positive way. We could be much kinder to ourselves, actually, if we understood this. And we could be much certainly kinder to our fellow human beings who suffer so much. Uh, if we understood this concept of everything being connected, all my relations, all the traditional wisdom, the 
the native tradition of the medicine wheel with the mind and the intellect and the body and the spirit and the emotions. The modern version of it, the biopsychosocial spiritual view of medicine and healing. If we understood addiction, which is such a clear teaching for us all about the nature of human beings and human life and how to um, recover from suffering, if we understood that, we would not only have a much better treatment system, we'd also have a much better society. Thank you. Thank you. You okay? Thank you. Thank you. I think you've given us uh, certainly a lot to think about. We very much appreciate it. Your point about uh, context and tone in, in asking questions yeah. is, is well taken. Will you still take some questions, though? I will. We'll have to. <laughs> this is what we've got. Yeah, that's what we've got. That's what I wasn't got. looking at it the whole time, but I did yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Well, let's get right to it. Um, uh, this question is from uh, Hope. Uh, the question is, when trauma isn't obvious or apparent, how do you find the right type of healing? Is finding the trauma always the first step, a necessary step? No, sometimes it's very difficult. I mean, sometimes people are traumatized in a womb. And uh, people who do uh, rebirthing, for example, find this a lot. When I work with psychedelic modalities, people often have amazing realizations about what happened in the womb to them. Now, those incidents or those episodes are not available to ordinary recall. But it's not necessary. It's not necessarily necessary. Because the trauma shows up in your everyday life. And I can very easily tell you what happened to you as a child just when you tell me the last time you got upset with somebody in your life. Our upsets are clear guides to the stuff that we're carrying inside. We talk about this word about getting triggered. But that's a very interesting word, trigger, because um, when you look at a weapon, how big a part of the weapon is the trigger? It's a tiny little part. There's ammunition there, there's uh, explosive material there, there's a whole contraption with the delivery of the, um, of the uh, ammunition. What should we be more interested in? The trigger? Or all that other stuff, the much bigger parts of the weapon? And I'm saying to you, if you're not sure what your trauma is, there's ways of getting there. One way of getting there is to look very carefully at when you get upset and why, when you get triggered and why. That'll tell you about what happened to you. Maybe not the, all the physical facts, but you don't need to have the physical facts. It's the emotional facts that matter. Now, there are other ways. There are modalities like somatic experiencing that work with the body, various somatic therapies. The body carries memory. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's wonderful book on, on, on trauma called uh, The Body Keeps the Score. My book, When the Body Says No. Um, there's modalities like EMDR and brain spotting and various other um, ways of working that bypass conscious memory. So you don't necessarily have to uh, recall exactly what happened. Thank you, and thank you for the question, Hill. Uh, this next one uh, has got uh, quite a few likes. It's from Evan. Uh, many of the greats have an obsessive or addictive quality. Uh, Jobs, Steve Jobs, uh, Da Vinci, uh, Shaq, etc. Who's the, the second one? Shaq, the, the basketball player. Little Shaq O'Neal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is addiction to one's craft a necessary prerequisite to greatness? Um, no. Addiction to one's craft is not necessary for greatness. By the way, when you would say? Louder. OK, I need to speak louder. Thank you. It's my wife. Uh, at home, she's always telling me to be more quiet. I don't understand. Uh, when you said jobs, I didn't know you were talking about Steve Jobs. I was talking Steve about, Jobs. I, I was talking about yeah. jobs and uh, in general, which it reminded me that I promised to talk about heroin to workaholism, and I never said a word about workaholism. 
Well, workaholism has been one of my uh, particular significant problems. It's created real issues in my life and in my marriage and, 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 and you know, personal relationship to myself. As always, it has a, a role to play. So because of the circumstances that I was born into as a Jewish infant in Eastern Europe during the Second World War under the Nazis, I really got the impression that the world didn't want me. I mean, they did a very good job of almost getting rid of me. So I got that message. Now, when you get to, through my mom's unhappiness, by the way, I didn't get it directly from Hitler, I got it through my mother, who was very unhappy and, 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 and terror-struck and so on. So I get the sense I'm not wanted. Well, if you're not wanted, then you better make yourself the equivalent of wanted. And the closest thing, way you can make yourself, if you're not wanted, the closest thing to that is being needed. So if you're not wanted, apply for medical school. <laughs> now they're going to want you all the time. When they're dying, when they're being born, and at every moment they have a problem in between, they're going to want you. And you think, hey, this is great, now I'm wanted. But of course, in you, you know that it's not you they want. It's what you can do for them that you want, which is entirely appropriate. And precisely because it doesn't give you what you're really looking for, you keep looking for more all the time. And that's the essence of work addiction. Now, I can tell you that I could have done everything I've done in the world and done it probably with more grace and um, given better guidance or service to whoever I was working with if I was not addicted. Because in the addiction process, I'm wanting something from that experience. When you're working with somebody, it's not so good if you want something from that experience, because that interferes with their experience. Jobs could have been a genius and, 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 and created all that he did without being addicted to it. So there's a difference between a passion and an addiction. A passion is simply something that you're committed to and you really are called to engage in, but you're not craving it for yourself and you're not going to keep doing it despite negative consequences to yourself and your family. Nobody needs that to, to achieve greatness. That's the answer. Very good. And thank you for the question. Uh, this next question comes from uh, Chris. As social policies are becoming data-driven, how are we quantifying the effects of trauma to design more effective social policies and remediate the effects? Well, I'm not sure I understand the question, really. Um, do you, can you rephrase it for me if you get it? Well, I think what Chris is trying to, to say is, um, you know, social policies, many social policies data, being, being data-driven. Data oh, yeah, yeah, but you know what? Um, thank you, I got it now. It depends on what data is put into the system. So the, the, the adverse childhood experiences studies that I told you about, they've been published in at least 100 journals. Psychological journals, child development journals, addiction journals, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. Do you think the average physician hears about it? Do you think the average policymaker knows anything about it? No, that's changing. I have to say, I mean, I, I don't play in a totally negative picture. In British Columbia, for example, some doctors are now going to conferences where they're going to hear about trauma. I happen to know that because I'll, I'll be speaking to them in, in May here in Vancouver. And, and other policymakers are, are beginning to find out about it. So the question is what kind of data is being put into the system? And so far, the appropriate data on brain development and trauma and all that has not yet been input. So it's that input that's required. I'm pretty sure once it is. And there's systemic resistance against it, by the way. It's not an accident that this is taking such a long time. It's so simple, really. It's so obvious. The data is so compelling. There's some very powerful forces at play, economic and psychological, in this society that keep this, keeps this information for becoming mainstream knowledge and, uh, and, and the basis of policy. Uh, next question from uh, Natasha. How do you support clients who don't want to stop using substances 
after harm reduction work has been done, knowing they may leave your office and die. May, knowing that? They may leave your office and die. You know, you can only take people where they want to go. I never expected anybody to leave my office and wanted to give up substances. I was hoping they would. You have to work with people wherever they're at. And as soon as you, anybody senses pressure on them, I mean, Mike, if you just put your hand out for a minute, would you mind doing an experiment with me? Just take one of your hands and put it up like this. Now, what do you do as soon as they push on you? You resist. As soon as anybody senses pressure, emotional or physical, there's a natural resistance. When kids do it, we call them oppositional defiant. Instead of recognizing it, we're the ones pushing on them. So I think, I really think that it's a, it's a balancing of, of, of your genuine desire for your clients to get better and dropping all attachment that they should get better. That's not up to you. It's only up to you to be there for them as humanely, as presently, as compassionately, as expertly as you can. The rest is within them. And if you notice irritation or, 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 or frustration within yourself, guess who's being triggered? It's got nothing to do with your client. Okay? All right, thank you. Uh, next one from uh, Yasmin. What is your opinion on using EMDR therapy for treating past traumas? Right, so I mentioned EMDR already as one of the modalities. EMDR means eye movement desensitization reprogramming. It's a particular method developed in the last 20 years or so. Um, it uses tracking eye movements, which on some degree, in some way, reflect inner emotional realities, and then the therapist then knows how to use your eye movement to get you to put you in touch with some emotional reality and then to explore the beliefs that you have around it. And of course, it's not what happened to us as children that's the problem. As I said, it's what happens inside us that's the problem. And so this can't happen, shouldn't happen. But if a child was beaten, And they didn't conclude that if this terrible thing is happening to me, I must be a terrible person. But if they concluded, I'm a really good person, this person who's beating me is crazy, there'd be no long-term trauma. The long-term trauma is the child is beaten or otherwise neglected or mistreated or whatever, or not listened to, and the child builds the at least unconscious and very often overtly stated belief that since this thing happened to me, I must be a terrible person. So, one of the things that EMDR does is, is, is you get to a point where you get in touch with this basic emotion, but you put a different meaning on it. So, as somebody once said, it's never too late to have a happy childhood. Simply by revisiting your inner beliefs and then reformatting what you believe about it. That's not just a conscious intellectual process, but EMDR is one way to get there, yeah. Thank you. A uh, question from Devon. What's your view on a drug treatment court that provides a supervised detox and rehab instead of punishment? Yeah, well, there's a drug court in Vancouver now and then in other Canadian cities where under certain criteria, in other words, <clears throat> your addiction conviction can't have involved violence and so on, but under certain circumstances, under limited circumstances, you're given the choice between a jail sentence or a treatment, basically. And I think insofar as it goes, it's a good idea. It just doesn't go far enough, because everybody, everybody should be offered treatment. In fact, they should, but, but on the other hand, you can't force treatment on anybody either. You can't coerce people into treatment successfully, not over the long term. But I think those treatment courts are good ideas in the context of our current very, <clears throat> to say inadequate is inadequate. It's worse than inadequate, legal system. Uh, in the context of that legal system, it's a really good idea. And it really goes along with the traditional idea of restorative justice, where the idea is not to punish the individual, 
but to restore them to the community and to restore them to health. So that's a step in the right direction. Okay, we got time for a couple more. Uh, <clears throat> how much adversity is positive in a child's life? Adversity can be a teaching experience if the child has support to go through that experience and if they can draw the lessons. So the question is not how much adversity, the question under what conditions the adversity. So that adversity is just a natural part of life. Grandparents die, sometimes parents die. Kids may not want to talk to you. A pet may be run over by a car. In other areas of the world, and maybe sometime here soon, natural disasters can strike. That's just what life is like. If a child is supported and feels safe, be supported in an adult context, those experiences become uh, training to be uh, resilient, to be um, flexible, uh, to be inventive, and to be optimistic knowing that things will pass. But for the child to conclude that, they have to have a lot of connection with adults and a lot of support and a lot of wise guidance. So it's not the quantity of, uh, of, of, of diversity that's the issue, it's the quality of relationships that's the issue. And I'll we'll, uh, leave the last one to uh, Barry, who uh, says, you talked about Nancy Reagan's uh, uh, the yeah. Let's Say No campaign. If you were to replace that campaign with a different phrase, what might it say? <laughs> the last one's not necessarily easier. You know what, I don't know that I can come up with a phrase that, that, that in one slogan would encapsulate. Um, and then the question, who would I be aiming this at? Because if the, 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 the Just Say No campaign was aimed at either people using drugs or kids who are vulnerable to using drugs. So if I was aiming a campaign at those people, it'd be something like, you're a good person, help is available, please ask for it. But before such a campaign could be uh, put into practice, we'd have to make sure that the help is available, which right now, very often, it isn't. Thank you very much. Okay, thank, thank you. Thank you for taking these questions. Fred, over to you. Thanks, Mike. Uh, everyone, on behalf of Alumni UBC, please join me in thanking uh, Mike Colleen, our moderator, and of course, a huge thank you to Dr. Gabor Mate.